Would you pay $20 for a used game and $20 more to play it online with your friends? EA seems to think so. Have you ever played the classic Sierra online adventure series, King's Quest? If you haven't, Telltale Games has announced you'll be given the chance soon. And will the launch of Rift be the event that truly tears World of Warcraft's land of Azeroth asunder? I'm Michael Ubaldi, James Day, Ed Kirchgesner, and Heather Richtmeyer will discuss all that and more on the March 1st Game & Player Podcast. Hey, got it the first time. I did. You want to just uh, uh, start up so. and start talking? You <laughs> don't have to say, hey, Ed, why don't you start the show? Already? Okay. So, just on Tuesday, I received a shiny new copy of Bullets. Great game. Loving every minute of it. However, this is the first time I've bought a game from Electronic Arts. I think they're the only company that's actively doing this right now. Inside the box was a little card. It's a multiplayer access key. And this gives me, the original purchaser of Bulletstorm, free access to all multiplayer content on Xbox Live. Now, here's the rub. If I was to sell this game back to GameStop, the person that buys this game as a secondary buyer would have to then hop on Xbox Live Marketplace and shell out an additional, I, I think it's $20, maybe it's only 10 but I thought the original discussion was 20 bucks to buy a new multiplayer license key since it's a one-time use key, to then be able to get onto Xbox Live. So I, I think that this is Electronic Arts' way of trying to bite into used game sales a little bit um, and dissuade people from you know buying used versus buying a new copy, because obviously Electronic Arts is making diddly-do off of secondary sales. Um, this doesn't affect me too much, because I am not a person that really has the willpower and the time to sell games through a channel that would earn me any reasonable profit. So I just hold on to all my games. But now, Mike, I know that you sell a lot of what you buy for reviews and just games that you find average, you're done with them, you sell them off. I do so How regularly. Yeah. Okay. How do you think this is going to affect you as somebody who's independently selling games? It definitely influences... Uh who I buy from, and uh, I, I have uh, tangled with EA in the past, and I very much disliked their their pattern of of kind of locking you in as if uh, the, uh, the the terms of use are are some kind of lifelong contract. Um, I think it's just an extension of companies that get very very uh, protective over their intellectual property and want to keep. Uh, virtual property, um, uh, items that, uh, uh, products that exist in, in a kind of, uh, uh, universe of, of use rather than real ownership, um, especially effective, uh, on a PC where it's, it's very easy to lock someone down with a code, um, and then, uh, prevent that copy from ever getting to, uh, anyone else. Exactly. Um, I was just going to say that, that, you know, this is nothing new at all in the PC realm. I no. mean, anybody who's ever used production software or industrial software knows when you purchase a disc, usually you get a license key with that disc and that license key only recently have certain companies like Adobe even integrated license key transferability to mm -hmm. the end user. You know, I, it used to be that when you had a license key, even 
transferring the software from one computer you owned to another computer you owned was a gargantuan task. There was there was no simple way to do it. Oh yeah, um, and they, they they're incredibly invasive uh, types of uh, of copy protection. Uh, there used to be a uh, an audio editing suite or like a, a plugin suite that I used to use from this Israeli company. And I just eventually found alternatives because I didn't like having to uh, renew uh, uh, permissions to use the software and to have these uh, these these markers like like uh, uh, cookies on your operating system embedded deeply on your hard drive. It was just yeah. it, it, it was such a hassle um, as opposed to much more lenient companies, which would allow you to to use the software anywhere you wanted um, basically assuming that honest people would give them the money they need. But the bottom line, to, to answer your question, is it, it would definitely dissuade me. There's one reason why I don't do a lot of PC gaming, and it's because I, I'm not so attached to these games that I can justify paying once and uh, not necessarily getting my money back from, uh, from, from uh, uh, sales of, of the used product. Yeah. Um, and of course... The, the argument can always be made that uh, secondary sales, while uh, they, they don't directly uh, give profits to the, uh, to the publisher or the developer, they do great things in spreading the word, in, in giving others the experience of, of a game that will probably lead them to purchasing a title later in the series of that game or even uh, uh, more titles that uh, come from the publisher or the developer. It's, so I, th I think that these game developers, or not, I think the developers, so much of the publishers, need to understand the market in the same way that I think the record industry learned in the 80s and 90s. That, yeah, they're not earning anything off used sales, but you know, if, if I was to buy The Cure's Greatest Hits at a used record store for $5, if I loved it, you're right. I'm probably then going to be in line to buy you know, Wish or whatever new, next album they'd come out with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm assuming that, yeah, for, for, say, Mass Effect, I play Mass Effect 1 used, I'm probably going to buy Mass Effect 2 new because I can't wait to see what happens. It places far too much emphasis and trust in uh, initial sales and uh, I think ignores a massive part of the market that is what gives a game its its longevity and sometimes its popularity. I mean, what do you think a cult hit is? It's something that has, that has spread, uh, has grown through alternate means of distribution. So, it's oh yeah, I can think of a handful of Japanese games that I picked up towards the earlier part of this decade that their distribution was so small in the U.S. that you were the luckiest person in the world to stumble into a GameStop or whatever retail you were in and actually find a new copy of this game. Because most GameStops got maybe two retail copies. And mm -hmm. that was it. Uh, Res is a game I'm thinking of in particular. That I think there was one copy at my local game store. I was working at the mall at the time. Yeah, Ran in. It was one I knew I wanted. And that was it. They never got any more. Um, and, and, and those are the sorts of games, like, like you're saying, that probably would benefit from secondary sales. People learned about that game from word of mouth and from it being traded around and from it being resold and resold because there were, I, I want to say there were only about 50 or 100,000 copies sold in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Going one step further, if this is a reaction to the rumblings that we've heard 
just generally, uh, I'm sure there are stories, uh, uh, particularly associated with it, but, um, about developers and publishers not quite liking the fact that Xbox Live or other, you know, a PlayStation 3, uh, console manufacturers who host, uh, or at least are the, uh, the, the, the nexus for uh, multiplayer, um, are the ones making the money over the long run. But again, they fail to realize that human beings are social creatures, and when someone is, say, at another person's house, and they have a wonderful experience with, uh, with a multiplayer game, what do you think they're going to do? They're going to go out and buy that game and, uh, 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 and, and seek it because they, uh, they want to play with their friends. Yeah. Um, That's something I saw happening a lot with the first Halo, even, is people would go out and play it with their friends, multiplayer, and then come home and go, oh, I want that. I need to go buy an Xbox. Yeah, well, that, that is exactly what happened to me. I, yeah. I played it at Ed's. Uh, Chrome Hounds played that and saw the wonderful time that he had uh, with, uh, with with uh, colleagues at the time. I, I went out and, and purchased it solely based on that uh, experience. Um, yeah, I, I think that there's only so much control that uh, can be placed on the market. And anything more, I think, ultimately uh, damages the, the, the company. Yeah, it just seems strange that in this time where DRM is being cast aside by so many other mediums that now is the time that console publishers decide to more strictly govern the way that gamers can utilize the software they're purchasing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just last week I read a great interview with uh, Neil Gaiman that was a couple of years old now, but he's a, he's an author. In case you guys don't know, I think he did the Sandman series a number of other graphic novels. He has children's books. Anyways, he was originally very against the concept of people putting his work on the internet for free. You know, fans would say, put his newest poem up on their blog and say, hey, this is what Neil Gaiman wrote. Mm -hmm. And he was furious about this at first until he realized that especially in markets that had really lax copy protection, like say the former Soviet republics, he found that if his content was available for free in those places. It actually increased retail sales of his work because people were exposed to it. And then, hey, this guy's awesome. I'm going to go to the store and I'm going to buy his book. Yeah, how about so, that? So, yeah, I, you have to wonder if, if, you know, once again, people are, are blaming secondary sales when in, in certain ways, maybe they should be encouraging them. Yeah, they um, should. They should be thanking uh, uh, the the independent actions of of people. I think that the bottom line is that the majority of customers of consumers are honest, and developers and publishers uh, uh, in in media need to watch the trends. They need to observe behavior and realize that that people do things for a certain reason. And that they, they, they really can't get around that. That they shouldn't try to, to prevent that or circumvent that. Otherwise, they're going to end up in trouble. Uh, yeah, let me and just... it's not like EA needs to embarrass themselves any further at this point either. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, though I, I almost want to say that the age of EA bashing is behind us with all the nonsense Activision's been doing. I think that the Activision of today is the EA of five years ago. But still, this is a very odd and I would say troubling move that EA has made in embracing this. Um, at the same time, by no means do I want to sound like I'm in support of GameStop's 
um, <laughs> you used game marketplace because good lord it's horrific please because this is a public service announcements people if you're going to buy used games buy them from mike okay <laughs> buy them from mike don't go to gamestop okay anything from That's, you james um i think probably the best way of doing this is not to remove content um like uh ea sports games are apparently going to be doing um is is the the best way to sort of uh, encourage new game purchases is to put more incentives. Um, so um, and we've seen the likes of uh, things in pre-order uh, bonuses, uh, extra outfits, extra characters, those kind of small things. Uh, I think that's definitely kind of a, a halfway house in between. Um, uh, you know, kind of getting money from used sales, but at the same time not removing something that they can charge for later down the line. That's actually a great point too, James, because Bulletstorm shipped with a beta key for Gears of War 3. So I'm totally for, great, great, if you want to make that a one-time use key as happened with Crackdown and the Halo 3 beta access key, fine. Mm. That, I understand, swag like that, only applying to the original purchaser. You know, it's think of it, if it's truly going to be looked at as a bonus, fine. Mm-hmm. But you're right. Why take away core content of the game? That seems silly. I mean, even if you wanted to give me an extra skin that was a one-time use key so that, you know, my gun could be pink if I wanted it to be, or something <laughs> ridiculous like they, they like to pack in, fine. Make that a one-time use thing. But, yeah, to, to penalize everyone that's buying these games used... It, it it strikes me as a bit over the top. In a previous podcast, I talked about uh, the 1986 Christmas morning when uh, my sister and I laid eyes on and then played a game called King's Quest II. A uh, little California company called uh, Sierra, and later known as Sierra Online, more or less pioneered the concept of uh, uh, 3D adventure games. They were kind of a faux 3D uh, they were made up of uh, these these frames uh, that were uh, uh, tableau environments, uh, and uh, your character would move from frame to frame and uh, complete quests based on uh, puzzles and largely fairy tales where a player would use common sense and his own trivia knowledge to get through. The, uh, the genre seemed to die out uh, in the mid-90s, and... I think a lot of us assumed it uh, had uh, had its time pass, had been uh, obsoleted by uh, new games, new uh, genres, new new mechanics, new graphics. But uh, publishers and developers like Telltale Games have been reviving this genre uh, uh, incredibly and uh, proving that perhaps after all, we do like a good puzzle and we don't mind if we have a... Uh, a semi-animated character who uh, romps around in uh, a picture frame. Um, And to that end, uh, Telltale Games recently announced that they will be, uh, in their own words, uh, rebooting the King's Quest series. It's definitely a happy moment for me. I wasn't crazy about the King's Quest uh, series. They're they're definitely games from that era that uh, I have more uh, uh, of a sentimental reaction to, but... They were great. They were fun. I played uh, one through five, uh, played one, two, three, four contemporarily, and then played five uh, some years later 
the mid-late 90s, I think, as part of a collection. Uh, and so experience the games when they were cutting edge, um, when it was it was uh, uh, high class to play them on 16 colors instead of uh, a monochrome uh, monitor. But even then, it was it was an experience. There was just something neat about uh, uh, the uh, the format that Sierra presented. And certainly Telltale is a company that uh, does a good job matching modern mechanics and uh, production values with the essence of a game. So I can't think of uh, a better company to to revitalize uh, this this series and, and really bring one of the biggest names uh, in adventure gaming uh, back to uh, a kind of uh, commercial relevance. That That's just incredible. What's, uh, what's a little funny is that I think... Uh, to some degree, it would be uh, uh, beneficial, um, and maybe the only way in which these games could really be uh, uh, well-received. I recall, uh, Ed, uh, trying to spread the word to you back when we were in high school, and I think your response was, Mike, I tried to play the game, but the graphics were so crude that I couldn't identify things on the screen. Yes, especially <laughs> the, or- the original King's Quest, I believe, is what you had given me. Oh, and, I, okay. Um, it, yeah, it was for 1995 or 96 probably when i was playing it yeah uh my original exposure to the these games was uh the heroes quest games which i think were also they also went with the title quest for glory yes i can't remember which was the original series name but either way it, it was heroes quest and i think it may have been changed because it was similar to the hasbro uh oh, whatever game. yeah the board game yeah. right Yep, which was pretty asinine. But anyways, yeah, the uh, that that was my first exposure to Sierra Adventure Gaming, and it, that was clearly already an evolution. Um, you know, it, it it came after the King's Quest games, so um, it was hard for me to step back in time in terms of both graphics and in game mechanics. The uh, Heroes Quest games were so much deeper in that th- th- there was more of a modern RPG elements to them. Uh, you had stats. You engaged in actual real-time combat. Um, it wasn't just... Yeah, which you didn't in King's possible. Quest. It was, uh-oh, you took a wrong turn, you're dead. Which is okay. Um, I think that that, that that does lend itself to a particular genre. Oh, um, definitely. You know, and the, King's the, Quest, I think, was kind of an extension of uh, the, the, the original like, Zork games, the, the text adventure games. King, King's Quest was a text adventure game with, uh, you know, a graphical user interface attached to it. Yeah, no, yeah. That, that, that is a fair, uh, a fair assessment. Heather? I'm just somewhat amazed that you guys are talking about a game that came out two years before I was born. Oh, my God. Well, just imagine the, <laughs> uh, the, the, the wonder that we have <laughs> that, uh, that people are born after uh, any one of the Star Wars games comes out. Or Yeah, no. Uh, Star Wars games? There are Star Wars games? What? No, no, I mean... The, 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 <laughs> <laughs> Star Wars movies. Well, Star Wars games. There was an uh, uh, an upright arcade game. I'll never forget. Um, I would always. Uh, it, it was in the uh, the grocery store in Fazio's, and uh, I would look at it admiringly while it was in attract mode. And one afternoon, while my mother was uh, uh, getting everything bagged, I looked at it, and someone had stuck a quarter in it and walked away because. I think I think what I would usually do is I would press the start button just to see, and I press the start button, and 
Next thing I knew, I was in an X-Wing on my way to destroy the Death Star. It, it was <laughs> and it wonderful. it was probably the best 15 seconds of your life. That's <laughs> uh, 10, I, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I was never uh, good at uh, Yeah. Oh, dude, when I was did a, I just when I was a kid. you again? No, you're nope, there. You're here. Um, but, uh, so anyway, a very interesting facet of this, I find, is the large um, fan community that has grown up over the years, um, and kind of has as its uh, uh, raison d'etre to not so much uh, reinvent these games, but kind of relive them by following in the footsteps of Sierra Witch in the mid-90s, about the same time as the release of Quest for Glory uh, slash Heroes Quest, um, re-release the King's Quest game, uh, uh, the, the original, um, with updated graphics, which were updated graphics at the time, and of course now look uh, uh, quite uh, outdated. But um, yeah, these these uh, uh, fans, these players, these coders, these artists put together uh, King's Quest Two. I think they were working on King's Quest Three. Uh, just a, a purely a uh, 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 an act of admiration. It wasn't commercial in nature, and they're they're kind of quaint. Um, I think. Perhaps uh, what what wasn't understood by these uh, uh, enthusiastic people was uh, that uh, uh, games benefit from pacing just as much as movies, or it, it if in a different way, th- there is an importance to 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 design and good design. And from what I saw, they they looked just a little silly. It very much looked like the the video game version of fan fiction, but. Uh, I am curious to know what these people would think. Will they be incensed that uh, some uh, corporate entity is taking over their labor of love, or will be the, the, the will they be overjoyed because uh, they are going to be able to play their favorite game again? Now, Telltale also did. I mean, all the recent adventure games, really, didn't they? This is, these are the same guys that did uh, Wallace and Gromit, that did uh, oh, what's that Lucas Arts game, um, Monkey, Monkey Island. Island, Monkey Island, right? Am I am I right? <coughs> Yes. Yep. The same, yeah. Yeah. Uh, same guys. And every one of their games that I've played as an adventure game. Yeah, James. Actually, good. you had something to say about that about uh, uh, you know Telltale's uh, forte. Um. Yeah. They from basically from uh, all the games that I've played, they've just they've never made a bad one, which is is very impressive. Well, there's also uh, going back to the the fan uh, versions. Um, a lot of developers, when they they pick up kind of a, a dormant franchise, um, will close down any uh, fan projects, like send cease and desist, uh, you know, statements and things like that. Um, given uh, Telltale's history, though, they're probably not the company to do that, but uh, that is a possibility. Um, mm-hmm. Because it does become quite uh, relevant. In fact. Uh there was recently, of course, a uh, an issue between this fellow who had put together uh, Space Quest games and uh, uh, Activision, I believe, who now owns rights, uh, uh, wanted him to uh, to stop until they realized that a specific type of the mobile uh, uh, game that he was uh, that he was putting together, and again, just just for uh, uh, his own edification and the enjoyment of others, uh, was. Uh, 
was acceptable because it did serve, uh, as we were talking about at the beginning of this podcast, uh, as as a means of spreading the word about the uh, about the game. So yeah, that, that will be interesting um, to see if there is any kind of uh, legal crackdown uh, on uh, on these uh, unsanctioned uh, versions of the game. Yeah, well, especially when these fan developed projects are oftentimes so bloody good, you know, it, it almost. Would, it wouldn't. You're right. It wouldn't be a bad thing at all for some of them to remain live. You know, maybe in the case of uh, uh, World of Starcraft, uh, that mod which somebody had built using uh, Starcraft II's um, content creation engine. Yeah. Uh, you know, Blizzard basically is allowing the guy to keep this this mod on their servers, just provided he changed the name. Uh, which I think is great. You know, they, they recognize that this guy had this labor of love that was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Why, why take it away? Uh, because you're, you're risking, especially there where, you know, the same developer has, has held on to this property all this time. Why alienate the same people that have stood by you? Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if these fan creations weren't an indication of the, uh, the, the remaining value, the extant value of uh, the game. They looked and saw, and wow, people still do cherish these games so far uh, uh, that they'll go to great lengths to to recreate them. Oh yeah, if 500,000 or a million people say have downloaded Fan Creation X, does that perhaps also mean that maybe half of those, if not all of them, would buy a new King's Quest game? And I bet you the answer is probably yes. Indeed. Mm. Um, just before we round out the the topic, uh, my question to you: uh, Given that uh, uh, the statement was that this was going to be a reboot of the series, is there any particular direction you'd like to see it go in? As a uh, some with experience of the King's Quest series, um, I mean, when the word uh, reboot is used, I always think of something like. J.J. Abraham's uh, Star Trek movie from a couple of years <laughs> back. Uh, do you think that uh, they could continue uh, kind of the story beats uh, from the the original series, or would you prefer a complete kind of starting from scratch, um, maybe like a recreation of the first game uh, kind of situation? I could see this going very much awry. Um, it'll Sir Graham in Daventry. Trouble is, you know. Anyway, um, <laughs> I think Sierra had uh, had the right formula um, in drawing in uh, folk tales and fairy tales that uh, people were generally uh, familiar with, and uh, they could they could use those uh, as well as common sense and logic to to solve problems. Um, and, and defeat enemies and discover, uh, the, the answers to mysteries. As you were saying before, Ed, occasionally, uh, or, or, or is that you, James, um, about these illogical quests that there was no way to know what you actually had to do. So you had to reference a, uh, an answer book or in latter years, the, uh, the internet to get the walkthrough. I, I can even remember there were a handful of quests in the original King's Quest that just struck me as completely random. Mm-hmm. There really was no logic to their solving them. It's just, oh, 
here are some random things. Find out how to use them in the environment by typing in every possible action you can. Mm-hmm. There was a certain charm going back to the original about this tiny California company using the borrowed interest on every popular fairy tale uh, that that it could uh, it could snatch and uh, uh, put together in this pastiche. Uh, the, the the land of Daventry and then Colima uh, and uh, the, uh, the 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 third game, um, which spanned uh, uh, both Daventry and this distant land. It, it was a neat blend of of original and uh, uh, culturally uh, established uh, stories and and uh, and paradigms. I think the best possible outcome would be something that is in terms of gameplay uh and uh uh cast and narrative very familiar i i I would be disappointed if um say king's quest was not about sir graham earning the uh the crown for himself um honestly all all four of the uh the storylines for the uh the the, uh, the 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 beginning of the series were great. I thought I thought they really worked. Um, but taking that, maybe tightening up some of the quests, adding one here, adding another there, uh, making them uh, a little bit more enjoyable for uh, for modern audiences. Uh, less of a needle in a haystack. Um, adding uh, say uh, puzzles that uh, the Telltale is known for. And then uh, updating it with uh, uh, some very, very fine uh, painting and uh, expressive graphics. I think you've got a, a winning package right there. Um, how much of Telltale's output have you uh, experienced, Mike? Um, and if you if you played any, you know, something like from Sam and Max onwards, uh, do you see that engine kind of, you know, just being taking the essentials from that and? Uh, essentially king's questing it up yeah i think as long as telltale can convey uh almost miraculously the the extent the breadth of this fantasy land that sierra was able to do um i remember going back to my retro review of king's quest 2 uh just how painterly the the graphics were um Again, maybe it's just because I, I experienced them contemporarily that I understood the idiom of these these crude little representations. But uh, I, it, looking back, it still feels like there's a world there. And I know it, it's not necessarily easily done with with modern graphics. So I would say just a, just as long as a Telltale can accomplish that, they're they're halfway there. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Sound excited, Mike. <laughs> well, no, no, I'm disappointed with my uh, King Graham claiming the crown, knocking enemies out of his way. Look out, Jack of the Beanstalk, here comes Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Is this a wrestling event? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, this would be the eventual, uh, uh, the, the, the reboot. Well, you know, we're not really interested oh, okay. in the uh, the gentle King Graham. We're more interested in the, you know, mega holy tattooed King Graham with spikes surgically <laughs> implanted in his head with yeah. a Gatling gun, you know. But Mike, the tats give him a plus two to hit bones. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, judging from Telltale's other, like, uh, adaptations, though, I think they will keep it uh, faithful to the to the series. I mean, Monkey Island fans, Sour Max fans have been pretty 
pleased on the whole with what they've done with those series. So mm-hmm. I, th- I think most I, interestingly, I it, it, it may uh, uh, be uh, a surprise to see added characters, um, main characters, and uh, uh, or, or it could be a very much uh, a, a traditional take on uh, on the classic. As I wrote uh, earlier this week, the launch of Rift seems to catch World of Warcraft at a funny time. The honeymoon of the launch of Cataclysm, World of Warcraft's third expansion, is over. Guilds and uh, players who are serious about endgame are slogging through uh, raids and spending two to three hours uh, wiping on a single boss just for the, uh, the, the pleasure of saying that they've completed an encounter. Others are saying that, you know, after five, six years, I've seen it all. This really isn't uh, the, the story that I, that I signed up for. Seems generic. Here's this, uh, this uh, new game. It looks modern. It feels fresh. I think I'm going to spend my time uh, playing that. Do we think that Rift poses some kind of threat to World of Warcraft? I don't know that anything is really going to horribly threaten World of Warcraft, but I do think that if Rift is successful, it might get Blizzard to uh, reevaluate what they're doing a little bit more than they might be currently. What kind of aspects do you think Blizzard would review? Oh, well, let's see. Main things for Rift are more dynamic world and the greater class flexibility. So those might be things that they'd look at. But right now I know looking at what they announced for the next major patch, their big announcement for it. What is that noise? It's James fiddling with something. (laughs) Oh, sorry. (laughs) Didn't know that was picking up. (laughs) uh, Their big announcement was we're bringing back two old raids as five-man dungeons. Which... If that's the big thing that they're announcing, that is content that players have experienced and done previously. So that's a bit of a concerning thing about how Blizzard is approaching the game currently. That they seem to be trying to bring back uh, uh, moldy oldies. Somewhat. And kind kind of treating it as vintage when maybe it's simply old. I'm fine with nostalgia for nostalgia's sake, but when if that's all that you're doing, that that is troubling. Yeah, because they're having the two new five minutes, and I believe they're having two new smaller raids. One of which focuses on Ragnaros, who we already saw way back in Molten Core, and the other one is another Caverns of Time instance, which is again going back and revisiting an important scene from a Warcraft game. Mm-hmm. I, I would say that uh, although I've never been very interested in World of Warcraft lore, I think just the, the superficial charm has done it for me. Um, I, I don't turn to the game for compelling uh, uh, fantasy, but I do find the designers, the writers, referencing the game a little bit too much. That that it's almost caught in a. Uh, uh, a loop of a parody of itself. Um, oh, yes. It certainly is doing that. There's some quests in Hillsbrad that are very much a parody of the game and a parody of people with Kingslayer or people with the uh, Sparkle Pony mounts. And, it's, and then they have 
points in the narrative that they're trying to make seem very serious and epic, and they just don't mesh well at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my favorite aspects of Cataclysm were the times when they were clearly looking outside of the World of Warcraft franchise to bring in new ideas and content. And, you know, a lot of times it was goofy things, like um, the, the Harrison Jones archaeology quests, or uh, what was that one... Was it in Badlands? Yes. Mike, you remember this, the, the three stories? The day the Deathwing came. Oh, oh, yes. That was hysterical. And I mean, stuff like that, it's new, it's fresh, it's fun. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I want more of that. And I, I think the same flair could be given to serious, dramatic content. I mean, I'm not saying the game needs to always be funny, but it seems as if those lighthearted elements that were bringing something new to the table were what really kept me questing mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've slowly and painfully come to the conclusion that the majority of my questing experience in Cataclysm uh, felt generic uh, I think Oldham is probably the, 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 the exception to a majority of, of the zones that, that felt <laughs> kitty that, yeah, I, <laughs> that, 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 that felt obligatory um, yeah the uh the the highest level zone uh ostensibly the the climax of of the adventure twilight highlands i thought was a a dreadful bore it just felt i i i fly around there every now and then to go into the bastion of twilight dungeon and to uh to to farm some some herbs here and there and i i just think hmm did did i just was i was i too intent on reaching uh max level to really enjoy it but it just doesn't reach me. It it, it well, doesn't. Well, I'm halfway through the zone and nothing's happened yet. The only thing I found particularly interesting in that zone was uh, getting to work with Garona as Horde, and that was about the only thing I found particularly exciting. I'm guessing some of it too isn't as accessible to people without as much of a background with the previous Warcraft games, because there I'm sure there are people who are like, "Who's this Cho'Gall and where did he come from?" Yeah, at the same time, I think you, you didn't necessarily have to have played Warcraft 3 um, to appreciate Arthas. You could relate to Arthas. You can't relate to Cho'Gall. He's just this uh, uh, mix between um, an evil Shrek and Gollum. Uh, you know, okay, he's an evil ogre and his two heads uh, are... are uh, uh, Arguing. Arguing. They're, they're opposites. I get it. Okay. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm certainly enjoying myself. I, I treat World of Warcraft like, uh, I guess, a kind of sport. I, I really uh, enjoy playing uh, characters in, in competitive environments. I, I, I don't mind the, uh, the, the very cartoony graphics or the specific type of gameplay. Um, I, I like my guild and I, I like the dynamics of it, uh, for right now, but at the same time, as one guildie said, uh, he said, uh, playing Rift and seeing the graphics was, uh, a, a really refreshing experience after six years of, uh, uh, porn stashed humans and ugly night elves, um, referring to character models that haven't been changed in six years. I, I was just going to ask you to continue on that, Mike, but back to Rift, um, I mean, the, the, most of the competition that I've seen aimed at World of Warcraft has been, and maybe I'm dating myself here, the, the, the spate of Korean games that were released in the U.S., say, over the last three or four years. Um, what separates Rift from 
those games, which I think a lot of people felt were just sort of generic, and there wasn't much story to them. They just it, it was mechanics yeah. with no window dressing. Heather would um, be able to, I think, yeah. give us a good sense of that. Yeah, one of the things with Rift is the two factions are very defined. You have one, you have the Guardians, which are much more of a traditional fantasy ideal. You have your humans, your elves, your dwarves. And then the Defiants are much more technology. You have a mechanical horse. Now, the people who bring you back after you die are referred to as technicians. So there's... Certainly not, I didn't find a generic feel, certainly with the Defiant. The Guardians, I can see where someone would get that more so. But now, it's if, also if you were very to say this kind of had a sci-fi flair, would you say it was more in key with the Final Fantasy games or more in key with like the, the cyberpunk, not cyberpunk, the, the steampunk feel of World of Warcraft? Uh, I would compare it to Eberron, honestly, to the D&D Eberron setting is what... Oh, interesting. Okay. Getting gotten the feel from the defiance for you know i'll wander into the capital city and there's some guy out there with a mechanical ox there's also a potion vendor who the potion vendor is a construct and the ladies there saying yeah they hired me to keep an eye on the construct because it doesn't always work so (laughs) which kind of defeats the purpose of having someone to of not needing someone to sell the potions, but no, that, that, that is interesting. It's a, it's a different take, uh, and certainly uh, a good explanation for a distinct rival faction. Uh, I, I recently saw some screenshots of Rift, and if I didn't necessarily know I was looking at Rift, I'd think I was looking at uh, World of Warcraft. So certainly there are some some standards, some expectations that WoW has set that. Uh, developers at least uh, to some degree feel an obligation to meet yes there certainly are in terms of how quests are tracked in terms of how the basic ui is set up there's certainly some expectations so there's how the basic ui is set up and then there's you can pull up a screen and change anything in the ui around you can be like i want to display the raid frames here i want to display raid pets i don't want to display raid pets i'm going to put my action bars on the top of the screen or on the side or wherever i want so Mm -hmm. they've taken the basic standard and added some very nice additions to it yeah now i i I would say that a majority of these uh, would-be WoW killers do seem to coexist with World of Warcraft. It's not as if they they they, they try to to defeat the uh, the Colossus and are uh, are, are slain. Um, I think people are still playing Aeon or any of the other uh, putative rivals. But uh, it should be interesting to see if if a fair amount of uh, the WoW player base uh, vacates and does head for uh, greener pastures. Yeah, and I'm not sure that even a fair amount will vacate, but I do think that having more competition and more successful games in the field is going to uh, provide more motivation for Blizzard to look at what they're doing and how they could improve. Oh, definitely. Right now, they're the only show in town. So, I mean, I'd look at, say, the EA Sports franchises as, you know, a counter to that, that no, no one else is making a football game, for instance. So, how can you really expect there to be any innovation in the Madden franchise? Um, competition tends to breed 
good content. So, yeah, it will. It'll be interesting to see, especially if another fantasy game can succeed and just stay viable. I think that may drive Blizzard to do some interesting things. I mean, right now, what are what are the games that are out there? The the MMOs that you are hearing a lot about besides WoW, I'd say. Eve Online has a very small yet highly dedicated fan base. Um, You've got the free to play passel. Yeah, and, yep. I, and what's interesting too is I, I know a lot of younger gamers, um, you know, like coworkers' children that are really into the free to play games, like Lord of the Rings Online and D and D Online. Um, just because, I mean, yeah, they can't convince their parents to shell out fifteen bucks a month for WoW. So hey, I've got this free game to play. Um, and, and that surprised me. That, that, that's an, a niche market that I wouldn't have thought of that is clearly embracing these free-to-play games. Um, yeah. you know, whether, whether that's going to keep these games rolling is, you know, it remains to be seen. But it's cool to see that there is indeed a market for them. Yeah, and uh, some of those free-to-play games, I mean, DDO has some nice concepts and some nice ideas, and I picked up Lord of the Rings online a little the other day. I didn't play with it too much, but I did notice that when I group with someone, they have an assist button on their portrait I can click to target what they're targeting, which I thought was a clever idea. But yeah, Rift seems to be doing pretty well. They're in a head start period now for people who pre-ordered, and most of the U.S. servers at the moment are full or very high population. There's a couple that are low. They just opened four yesterday and some that are at medium population, but a lot of them have queues currently and the game's not even technically released yet, so we'll see how it goes. The one thing that I've seen with some of the games, for example, what I've heard about, I believe, Warhammer and Aeon, is the People would play it until they got to high-level content, and then they realized that there wasn't an abundance of that. And Rift seems like it'll avoid that since they have uh, five ten-man raids and one twenty-man at release. So hopefully that'll keep people interested a little bit longer. Mm-hmm.